Welcome to an Overdrive episode of the Russian Rulers History Podcast. Well, you might be saying, wait a minute, weren't we supposed to have a regular episode come up? And yes, the answer is, you were supposed to have one. But between my brother-in-law getting married and my youngest daughter having her 10th birthday, along with nine crazy little girls staying at our house overnight this past weekend, and the fact that I was a little unhappy with parts of my script, and then I came upon some material that seemed to contradict some of the information that I had gathered about people like uh, Leonid Brezhnev and Alexei Kosygin and Nikolai Podgorny, I decided to postpone that to make sure that my data was correct and that we were going to be able to give you a truthful, honest podcast, which will come this weekend because my slate is clear and I'll be able to record it. Now I want to kind of go back in time. Our last overdrive was the ending of Khrushchev, but I want to go back, way back, to kind of the beginnings of Russia. And this is going to be a series that I'm going to be doing, and this comes from a book called Medieval Russia's Epics, Chronicles, and Tales. Uh, it was edited by Sergei uh, Zanovsky. Uh, I'm really happy with this one. Uh, it's an older book, back from the 70s, and I was able to find this. And it has a lot of great uh, literature and uh, readings that I'm going to be doing over time because I want to get more of a richness of Russian history, that it's not just the rulers. It was the people who founded the country, those of the legends, uh, like the founding of Kiev, which we'll be talking about. And we'll be going back to people like Rurik and Oleg, but the tales that are told and how the Russian people we're told about these great people and these legends is something I'd really like to share with you, starting with today's episode. Now, if we really wanted to start, it would be the Primary Chronicles. Uh, this was also known as the Tale of Bygone Years. And as uh, Zinkovsky puts it, it's a kind of a structurally complicated work. They go by years, and their years are very different. So say with the, uh, the first year, which is the year 852, well, according to them, it's the year 6360, which is the old Byzantium uh, calendar. Uh, but we're going to go with, you know, our present modern-day uh, years. Uh, it's a very fascinating read, and we're not going to start at the very beginning. Uh, this is known as the Prolegomenon, and this has to deal with, you know, who Noah's uh, children and how they were able to inhabit certain areas. And, you know, it kind of is very dry. Uh, there's one that I'm going to read separate time when we go into the kind of the saints and the religious figures of Russia, and that's how the uh, legend of Saint uh, or Apostle Andrew when he came to Russia. What I'm going to start with is the founding of the city of Kiev. Then we're going to go into the beginning of the Russian state and the arrival of Rurik, then Prince Oleg's campaign against Constantinople, and the death of Oleg. So those are going to be our readings today. So we'll start with the founding of the city of Kiev. The Polyanians lived apart and governed their families, for thus far they were brethren, and each one lived with his gens on his own lands, ruling over his kinfolk. There were three brothers, Ki, Shechek, and Khorif, and their sister was named Leibid. Ki lived upon the hill, where the Borich Trail now is, and Shishek dwelt upon the hill, now named Shishek Kovitska, while on the third resided Koriv, after whom this hill is named Korivitsa. They built a town and named it Kiev, after their oldest brother, 
Around the town lay a wood and great pine forest in which they used to catch wild beasts. These men were wise and prudent. They were called Polyanians. And there were Polyanians descended from them living in Kiev to this day. Some ignorant persons have claimed that Ki was a ferryman, for near Kiev there was at that time a ferry from the other side of the river, in consequence of which people used to say, to Ki's ferry. Now if Ki had been a mere ferryman, he would never have gone to Constantinople. He was then the chief of his kin, and it is related what great honor he received from the emperor when he went to visit him. On his homeward journey, he arrived at the Danube. The place pleased him, and he built a small town, wishing to dwell there with his kinfolk. But those who lived nearby would not grant him this privilege. Yet even now the dwellers by the Danube call this town Kievitz. When Ki returned to Kiev, his native city, he ended his life there, and his brothers, Shishek and Koriv, as well as their sister, Libid, died there also. Now we move on to the beginning of the Russian state and the arrival of Rurik. And this is where they start their chronicle system, where they name the dates, and they, well, actually more of the years where these events occurred. And so we'll start with 859. The Varangians from beyond the sea imposed tribute upon the Chuds, the Slavs, the Merians, the Ves, and the Krivichians. But the Hazars imposed it upon the Polyanians, the Sevrians, and the Vyachians, and collected a squirrel skin and a beaver skin from each hearth. 862. The Slavs. The tributaries of the Varangians drove them back beyond the sea and, refusing them further tribute, set out to govern themselves. There was no law among them, but tribe rose against tribe. Discord thus ensued among them, and they began to war against one another. They said to themselves, Let us seek a prince who may rule over us and judge us according to the law. They accordingly went overseas to the Varangian Rus. These particular Varangians were known as Rus, just as some are called Swedes and others Normans, Angles, and Goths, for they were thus named the Chuds, the Slavs, and the Kriviachians, then said to the people of Rus, Our land is great and rich, but there is no order in it. Come to rule and reign over us. They thus selected three brothers, with their kinfolk, who took with them all the Rus and migrated. The oldest, Rurik, located himself in Novgorod. The second, Sinius, in Belozero and the third, Truvor, in Izborsks. On account of these Varangians, the district of Novgorod became known as Russian land. The present inhabitants of Novgorod are descended from the Varangian race, but aforetime they were Slavs. After two years, Sinius and his brother Truvor died, and Rurik assumed the sole authority. He assigned cities to his followers, Polotsk to one, Rostov to another, and to another, Belozero. In these cities, there were thus Varangian colonists, but the first settlers were, in Novgorod, Slavs. 
In Polotsk, Kriviachians, a Belozero, Ves, and Rostov, Marians, and in Murom, Muromians. Rurik had dominion over all these districts. With Rurik, there were two men who did not belong to his kin, but were boyars. They obtained permission to go to Constantinople with their families. They thus sailed down the Dnieper, and in the course of their journey they saw a small city on a hill. Upon their inquiry as to whose town it was, they were informed that three brothers, Ki, Shishek, and Koriv, had once built the city, but that since their deaths their descendants were living there as tributaries of the Hazars. Azkold and Deir remained in the city, and after gathering together many Varangians, they established their domination over the country of the Polyanians, at the same time that Rurik was ruling at Novgorod. Now we go to the year 866. Askolt and Deir attacked the Byzantine capital during the 14th year of the reign of the Emperor Michael. When the Emperor had set forth against the Saracens and had arrived at the Black River, the Eparch sent him word that the Russians were approaching Constantinople, and the Emperor turned back. Upon arriving inside the strait, the Russians made a great massacre of the Christians and attacked Constantinople in 200 boats. The emperor succeeded with difficulty in entering the city. The people prayed all night with the patriarch Photius at the Church of the Holy Virgin and Blasnare. They also sang hymns and carried the sacred vestment of the Virgin to dip it in the sea. The weather was still, and the sea was calm, but a storm of wind came up, and when great waves straightaway rose, confusing the boats of the godless Russians, it threw them upon the shore and broke them up, so that few escaped destruction. The survivors then returned to their native land. And after agreeing upon the tribute, and mutually binding themselves by oath, they kissed the cross, and invited Oleg and his men to swear an oath likewise. According to the religion of the Russians, the latter swore by their weapons, and by their god Perun, as well as by Volos, the god of cattle, and thus confirmed the treaty. Oleg gave orders that silken sails should be made for the Russians and linen ones for the Slavs, and his demand was satisfied. The Russians hung their shields upon the gates as a sign of victory, and Oleg then departed from Constantinople. The Russians unfurled their silken sails and the Slavs their sails of linen, but the wind tore them. Then the Slavs said, let us keep our canvas ones. Linen sails are not made for Slavs. So Oleg came to Kiev, bearing pauls, gold, fruit, and wine, along with every sort of adornment. The people called Oleg the seer, for they were but pagans and therefore ignorant. The next one is the death of Oleg. And this is part of legend of how he died. And I did cover this in the uh, first few episodes, but I find this uh, rather fascinating. So let's get to it. The year is now 912. Thus Oleg ruled in Kiev and dwelt at peace with all nations. Now autumn came, and Oleg bethought him of his horse that he had caused to be well fed, yet had never mounted, 
for on one occasion he had made inquiry of the wonder-working magicians as to the ultimate cause of his own death. One magician replied, O oh, prince, it is from the steed which you love and which you ride that you shall meet your death. Oleg then reflected and determined never to mount this horse or even to look upon it again. So he gave command that the horse should be properly fed, but never led into his presence. He thus let several years pass until he had attacked the Greeks. After he returned to Kiev, four years elapsed. But in the fifth, he thought of the horse through which the magicians had foretold that he should meet his death. He thus summoned his senior squire and inquired as to the whereabouts of the horse, which he had ordered to be fed and well cared for. The squire answered that he was dead. Oleg laughed and mocked the magician, exclaiming, Soothsayers tell untruths, and the words are not but falsehood. The horse is dead, but I am still alive. Then he commanded that a horse should be saddled. Let me see his bones, said he. He rode to the place where the bare bones and the skull lay. Dismounting from his horse, he laughed and remarked, Am I to receive my death from this skull? And he stamped upon the skull with his foot. But a serpent crawled forth from it and bit him in the foot, so that in consequence he sickened and died. All the people mourned for him in great grief. They bore him away and buried him upon the hill, which is called Shishekovitsa. His tomb stands there to this day, and it is called the Tomb of Oleg. Well, the next part is Igor's death and Olga's revenge. Well, after Oleg died, Igor now became the ruler of Russia. He was not a very successful person in his military enterprises, and he was really not very popular as well. Uh, he had taken, undertaken a campaign against uh, the Slavic tribe of the Derivlians, and they lived near Kiev, in, near the Polish border, just between those two sites. Uh, and it resulted in his death. His widow, Olga, now very angry, cruelly revenged the death of her husband. And this is part of the folklore of her story and what happened after Igor died. We're now in the year 945. And this year, Igor's retinue said to him, The servants of Svenald are adorned with weapons and fine raiment, but we are naked. Go forth with us, O prince, after tribute, that both you and we may profit thereby. Igor heeded their words, and he attacked Deriva in search of tribute. He demanded additional tribute and collected it by violence from the people, with the assistance of his followers. After thus gathering the tribute, he returned to his city. On his homeward way, he said to his followers, after some reflection, Go forward with the tribute. I shall turn back and rejoin you later. He dismissed his retainers on their journey homeward, but became desirous of still greater booty. He returned on his tracks with a few of his vassals. The Derivlians heard that he was again approaching, and consulted with Mal, their prince, saying, If a wolf comes among the sheep, he will take away the whole flock one by one unless he be killed. If we do not thus kill him now, he will destroy us all. They then sent forward to Igor, inquiring why he had returned, since he had collected all the tribute. 
But Igor did not heed them, and the Derivlians came forth from the city of Izkorotsin and slew Igor and his company, for the number of the latter was few. So Igor was buried, and his tomb is near the city of Izkorotsin and Dreva, even to this day. But Olga was in Kiev with her son, the boy Sviatoslav. His tutor was Asmund, and the troop commander was Svenald, the father of Mistisha. The Derivlians then said, See, we have killed the prince of Russia. Let us take his wife Olga for our prince Mal, and then we shall obtain possession of Sviatoslav and work our will upon him. So they sent their best men, twenty in number, to Olga by boat, and they arrived below Borichev in their boat. At that time the water flowed below the heights of Kiev, and the inhabitants did not live in the valley, but upon the heights. The city of Kiev was on the present site of the palace of Gordiat and Nisiphorus, and the prince's palace was in the city where the palace of Vrastislav and Chud now stands, while the ferry was outside the city. Without the city there stood another palace, where the palace of the Cantors is now situated, behind the church of the Holy Virgin, upon the heights. This was a palace with a stone hall. Olga was informed that the Derivlians had arrived, and summoned them to her presence with a gracious welcome. When the Derivlians had thus announced their arrival, Olga replied with an inquiry as to the reason of their coming. The Derivlians then announced that their tribe had been sent them to report that they had slain her husband, because he was like a wolf, crafty and ravening, but that their princes, who had thus preserved the land of Dereva, were good and that Olga should come and marry their prince Mal, for the name of the prince of Dereva was Mal. Olga made this reply. Your proposal is pleasing to me. Indeed, my husband cannot rise again from the dead, but I desire to honor you tomorrow in the presence of my people. Return now to your boat and remain there with an aspect of arrogance. I shall send for you on the morrow, and you shall say, we will not ride on horses nor go on foot. Carry us in our boat, and you shall be carried in your boat. Thus she dismissed them to their vessel. Now Olga gave command that a large, deep ditch should be dug in the castle with the hall outside the city. Thus on the morrow, Olga, as she sat in the hall, sent for the strangers, and her messengers approached them and said, Olga summons you to great honor. But they replied, We will not ride on horseback nor in wagons, nor go on foot. Carry us in our boat. The people of Kiev then lamented, Slavery is our lot. Our prince is killed, and our princess intends to marry their prince. So they carried the Derevillians in their boat. The latter sat up on their cross benches in great robes, puffed up with pride. They thus were borne into the court before Olga, and when the men had brought the Derivlians in, they dropped them into the trench along with the boat. Olga bent over and inquired whether they found the honor to their taste. They answered that it was worse than the death of Igor. She then commanded that they should be buried alive, and they were thus buried. Olga then sent messages to the Derivlians to the effect that, if they really required her presence, they should send after her their distinguished men, so that she might go to their prince with due honor. 
for otherwise her people in Kiev would not let her go. When the Derivlians heard this message, they gathered together their best men, who governed the land of Deriva, and sent them to her. When the Derivlians arrived, Ulcom commanded that a bath should be made ready, and invited them to appear before her after they had bathed. The bathhouse was then heated up, and the Derivlians entered in to bathe. Olga's men closed up the bathhouse behind them, and she gave order to set it on fire from the doors, so that the Derivlians were all burned to death. Olga then sent to the Derivlians the following message. I am now coming to you, so prepare great quantities of mead in the city where you killed my husband, that I may weep over his grave and hold a funeral feast for him. When they heard these words, they gathered great quantities of honey and brewed mead. Taking a small escort, Olga made the journey with ease, and upon her arrival at Igor's tomb, she wept for her husband. She bade her followers pile up a great mound, and when they had piled it up, she also gave command that a funeral feast should be held. Thereupon the Derivlians sat down to drink, and Olga bade her followers wait upon them. The Derivlians inquired of Olga where the retinue was which they had sent to meet her. She replied that they were following with her husband's bodyguard. When the Derivlians were drunk, she bade her followers fall upon them, and went upon and went about herself egging on her retinue to the massacre of the Derivlians. So they cut down five thousand of them. But Olga returned to Kiev and prepared an army to t attack the survivors. We now move to the year 946. Olga, together with her son Sviatoslav, gathered a large and valiant army and proceeded to attack the land of the Derivlians. The latter came out to meet her troops, and when both forces were ready for combat, Svetoslav cast a spear against the Derivlians. But the spear went between the ears of his horse and struck its feet, for the prince was but a child. Then Sveineld and Asmund said, The prince has already begun battle. Press on, vassals, after the prince. Thus they conquered the Derivlians, and the result? that the latter fled and shut themselves up in their cities. Olga hastened with her son to the city of Iskorotsin, for it was there that her husband had been slain, and they laid siege to the city. The Derivlians barricaded themselves within the city and fought valiantly from it, for they realized that they had killed the prince, and to what fate they would in consequence surrender. Olga remained there for a year without being able to take the city, and then she thought out this plan. She sent into the town the following message. Why do you persist in holding out? All your cities have surrendered to me and submitted to tribute, so that the inhabitants now cultivate their fields and their lands in peace. But you would rather die of hunger without submitting to tribute. The Derivlians replied that they would be glad to submit to tribute but that she was still bent on avenging her husband. Olga then answered, Since I have already avenged the misfortune of my husband twice on the occasions when your messengers came to Kiev, and a third time when I held a funeral feast for him, I do not desire further revenge, but am anxious to receive 
a small tribute. After I have made peace with you, I shall return home again. The Derivlians then inquired what she desired of them, and expressed their readiness to pay honey and furs. Olga retorted that at the moment they had neither honey nor furs, but she had one small request. Give me three pigeons, she said, and three sparrows from each house. I do not desire to impose a heavy tribute like my husband, but I require only this small gift from you, for you are impoverished by the siege. The Derivlians rejoiced and collected from each house three pigeons and three sparrows, which they sent to Olga with their greetings. Olga then instructed them, in view of their submission, to return to their city, promising that on the morrow she would depart and return to her own capital. The Derivlians re-entered their city with gladness, and they reported to the inhabitants the people of the town rejoiced. Now Olga gave to each soldier in her army a pigeon or a sparrow, and ordered them to attach by a thread to each pigeon and sparrow a match bound with small pieces of cloth. When night fell, Olga bade her soldiers release the pigeons and the sparrows. So the birds flew to their nests, the pigeons to their coats, and the sparrows under the eaves. Thus the dovecotes, the coops, the porches, and the haymows were set on fire. There was not a house that was not consumed, and it was impossible to extinguish the flames because all the houses caught fire at once. The people fled from the city, and Olga ordered her soldiers to catch them. Thus she took the city and burned it, and captured the elders of the city. Some of the other captives she killed, while she gave others as slaves to her followers. The remnant she left to pay tribute. She imposed upon them a heavy tribute, two parts of which, which went to Kiev, and the third to Olga and Vyeshkorod for Vyeshkorod was Olga's city. She then passed through the land of the Reva, accompanied by her son and her retinue, establishing laws and tribute. Her residences and hunting preserves are there still. Then she returned with her son to Kiev, her city, where she remained one year. Well, I hope you enjoyed those readings. Uh, we're going to continue the series as we move along, and we're going to bounce around Russian history, so you can hear the writings of the people at the time. The primary chronicles were written in about the 1100s to 1200s, and they're our main source of information about what was going on in early Russia. Well, thank you for listening. Uh, don't forget to join us on Facebook at the Russian Rulers History Podcast, where you can ask questions, leave messages, uh, make a comment, and you know, join in the uh, conversations. Some are rather humorous, and some are rather rich in information. And as always, das vidanya, ispasiba bolshoya.